So what's unique about us is really this three-pronged value proposition to customers. It's the direct sequestration of tons of carbon dioxide annually. It's the improvements in the indoor air quality because we're scrubbing indoor air pollutants, including CO2, which is shown to have harmful effects on human health and cognition. And then lastly, energy savings. Welcome to today's episode of Wharton Current. This is your host, Shivani Shika, a first-year MBA student at Wharton and a former energy investor. In this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Ned Downey, who's completing a PhD in public affairs at Princeton, studying low-carbon transition. Ned and I are sitting down with Nick Martin, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Carbon Reform. Carbon Reform is a Delaware-based startup that's developing breakthrough carbon capture technology. The startup was founded in 2020 and just recently raised a $3 million round of seed funding led by Azalea Ventures. Very exciting news to be heading into 2023 with. So before we dive in, just a quick background here. Carbon capture refers to a suite of technologies that play an important role in meeting net zero emissions. It's a three-step process that involves the capture of carbon dioxide from various sources of emissions. That could be power plants, that could be heavy emitting industrial facilities and cement or other manufacturing applications. And then it stores carbon dioxide as a feedstock that can be used in different applications or can store it in geological formations underground in a permanent form. And these kind of approaches are the norm in industrial carbon capture technologies, big players like Shell, Exxon, Mitsubishi, Equinor, So while much of carbon capture market is aimed at output from heavily polluting industrial plants, carbon dioxide also exists generally in the air around us, albeit at much lower, lower concentrations. And there's another segment of the market that's trying to capture this CO2. That's where carbon reform is. Nick here will tell you all about this technology, what it offers, the commercial framework, and how it is being brought to market. So Nick, thank you for joining Wharton Current. We're thrilled to have you as our guest today. Before we kick off and talk about your startup, do you mind giving us a brief background on yourself, what you did before, and what gravitated you towards the carbon capture space? Definitely. And thanks, Shivani, and for having me on today. Yeah, to give you a little bit of background on myself, I have a background in in chemical engineering. And during my time in undergrad, I, I was doing a lot of research in the space of biofuels and renewable energy technology, always with the lens on social impact at the intersection of renewable energy technology and sustainability. Because what I found over the course of my academics and professional career is oftentimes the people who need these technologies the most are left out, or it takes decades for them to get access to it. So right after college, actually, one of my First, I guess you could say startup forays was into a startup where the founder was creating a solar technology specifically for sub-Saharan Africa. And long story short, a few years later, I was fortunate enough to receive government funding to actually go over to Nigeria and work on a solar-powered community center outside of Lagos, Nigeria, in one of the slums that would be powered by the women of the village to create jobs for them and also teach about clean electricity because they're mostly powered by diesel in this area. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is if you look at like everything I've done, it really is at the intersection of emerging technology and social impact. So my co-founder, Joe, and I came together over three years ago, her background in material science and climate science. We quickly were looking at the state of carbon capture and how currently it is out of the price range for a lot of the areas that need it the most. So what we're talking about buildings and built environments, it turns out there is a regional effect of climate on urban environments in particular. 
And the state of the art for carbon capture technology does not really address that localized effect. And it doesn't capitalize on existing infrastructure. So both of those are themes that we're trying to address. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's to give some context on sort of how we stumbled upon this current business model. Right on. Yeah, well, you're not getting ahead of yourself. You're getting right to the, what we want to talk about next, which is just tell us more about carbon reform and the technology. You know, carbon capture, it's kind of been some early stage pre-commercial or early stage commercial applications over the past few years you're seeing in large power industrial facilities. What are you guys doing? How are you guys different from that? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Yep. So we are creating a modular retro technology for commercial buildings. And, and this is a physical carbon capture device that retrofits into commercial buildings ventilation systems, specifically the return air of a building that is rich in CO2 from occupants, but also outside air. And what we do is we scrub the CO2 in other indoor air pollutants. So these are VOCs, particulate matter, viruses, et cetera. And our core proprietary sorbents, our polymer sorbent is what is capturing the CO2 and converting it into calcium carbonate or limestone. So I'll break that down a little more. Essentially, air enters our device. We scrub the other indoor air pollutants when our partners filter. So these are filters that exist on the market for VOCs, particulate matter. And usually what's left is the CO2, which existing technology does not address. We capture that with our, our proprietary technology and then reacts with an input material, which is calcium hydroxide or lime to produce calcium carbonate or limestone. That's a pretty standard chemical process. Our use case for inside a building's ventilation system is unique and our ability to permanently sequester carbon dioxide on site in one device is unique to our business model. So what you're left with at the end of that is clean air that goes back into the building's air handling unit to be supplied again to the building. So what's unique about us is really this three-pronged value proposition to customers. It's the direct sequestration of tons of carbon dioxide annually. It's the improvements in the indoor air quality because we're scrubbing indoor air pollutants, including CO2, which is shown to have harmful effects on human health and cognition. And then lastly, energy savings. So by cleaning more of the return air in a building, we're allowing the building to recycle the air that's already in its point, which reduces the amount of supplier that needs to come in from the outside. And that process of bringing in outside air into a building can be as much as 40% of a building's total energy spend. So what we're saying is you can reduce that load on your air handling unit, which actually corresponds to upstream CO2 equivalent reduction. One of the features of carbon capture that gets addressed in a lot of other applications is that it can be quite energy intensive, right? So direct air capture, where you're pulling carbon dioxide directly out of the air, usually not in buildings, but just more generally, that's got an energy of intensity of around six to 10 gigajoules per ton of carbon dioxide, maybe, you know, 1.5 to 3 megawatts per ton. So if you were to compare to your average school building load for Department of Energy data in 2012, they're using around 400 megawatts of power a year. So if you want to add another one and a half to three megawatts for a ton of carbon dioxide, you'd need to be increasing your power consumption for one ton by about a half percent for the school, say. So, you know, that's kind of the general perception is, oh, you know, we wanted carbon capture. It's going to be a big energy suck, right? What you guys are saying is, no, actually, we can do it and save you energy. That's correct. And we're orders of magnitude different on uh, amount of energy per ton. And it's a few things that based on how we actually do the scrubbing and the conversion of the carbonate, but it's also utilizing the existing infrastructure in a building. When you're talking about the energy and money that goes into these projects, a lot of it is just infrastructure. And for us, we're very keen on minimizing the amount of new stuff that needs to be built to capture CO2. I also just want to mention too, you mentioned schools and K through 12 higher ed 
are some of our early customers. I'll speak specifically to K through 12 because they're part of that group that typically doesn't have the budget for these energy efficiency upgrades. They're typically older buildings and they typically have some of the worst indoor air quality. Anecdotally, some of the studies we're seeing put CO2 levels inside of K through 12, 4,000 to 5,000 parts per million. Where you talk about outdoor levels that are four and 420 parts per million, this is over 10 times what the CO2 level is outside. That has a direct effect on the teachers and the students and the learning environment in there. So we can provide a solution that can be affordable by the school, can provide a return on investment just by the energy savings alone and directly impact students' learning environment, I think of the win-win. So following up on that, that's a key piece of value prop is saying basically we're going to make a better environment for whatever kinds of activities you're doing within your school. There's a value prop of energy savings, but just maybe give a full big picture of what is, you know, what's the business model here? How are you guys monetizing this? And for the limestone, is there like a commercial framework for that product, like to offtake, or how does that fit into the value prop? Good question. So our customer engagement is in three forms. The first is the actual indoor air quality assessments. We go into buildings first because a lot of them don't even know what's in their buildings and understand what are the indoor air pollutants. Of course, CO2 being the, the main one, how much could we project to save them in energy? We do that in this first phase of interaction. The second is the actual deployment of our carbon capsule device, which is what's going to be scrubbing the CO2. And the third is the ongoing maintenance. So we lease our device to our customers, and that's important because we want to basically take on all the maintenance and the servicing that's required. A lot of times when you give new technology to people that don't know how to use it, or there's an education curve, it's not used. So we can ensure that it's used. We can also ensure the end of life of our device if we maintain the lease. Our cradle-grade carbon emissions are essential that we're tracking all of them, and we can do this by leasing it. So what's also included in that annual maintenance is the changing out of our filters, the collection of the byproduct, I'll mention in a second, and the servicing of IoT, because we also have sensors that we keep throughout the building to tie it back in real time to our device so we can actually see the improvements in indoor air quality and CO2 levels. What we do with the carbon negative calcium carbonate, to your point, Ned, is we can sell that downstream to a number of industries, concrete, steel, building products. A lot of them are using calcium carbonate as an aggregate in their mixes. But the good news is our business model does not rely on the sale of that. So any revenue we generate from that is just bonus. Those first three phases that I talked about is really where the core of our revenue is coming from with customers. Thanks, Mike. Kind of shifting gears from that, can you talk to us a little more about what the market is like? I know you mentioned potential customer base, including schools, but what are other customers and uh, commercial buildings that you guys are targeting? And just from the market surveying that you've done, what has been the general feedback in installing these carbon capsules? Yeah. When you start thinking about where can CO2 levels be the highest and where do you have high occupant density? you start to really think of a lot of buildings. For us, obviously schools are important. Hospitals come to mind for early customers. Gyms are interesting. There's a lot of CO2 being exhaled in gyms. That's more so the occupant behavior that determines a customer. But we also look at the external, what's outside the building. So urban environments are of particular interest because there's heightened levels of air pollutants and CO2. If you think of places like factories near airports, there's a lot of potential use cases for this. For us, it's important that at least for our early customers, these are building owners and operators because they can make the financial decisions and also benefit from the air quality because they're typically tenants as well. Would love to hear about what customer incentives are in place and in getting these carbon capsules installed and what the general feedback so far has been. 
Sure. So the, the, I mean, the internal incentive too is that return on investment. So and by the energy savings that I spoke about, but also what I did mention is sharing in the carbon credits that we generate. So we get all of our customers set up on carbon credit trading platforms and we share in that. That alone is an economic incentive, which typically makes a lot people a lot when we bring a climate technology to them, they can digest it a lot easier because there's a financial return. There's external drivers too, though. So when we're talking about places like New York and Boston that have put local laws in effect to start capping the amount of CO2 that's coming out of commercial buildings, in New York, that's local law 97, in Boston, it's Berto 2.0. There's fines associated with over-emitting and over-operating your buildings. And then when you, outside of that, there's pressure just from, if you're talking about commercial building, the occupants. If you're talking about a school, it's the students. Students want to see people that their universities are taking action and actively pursuing technologies to decarbonize. And a lot of people have these 2030 or 2040 carbon neutral goals, but when you really dig into it, are nowhere near those targets. So we're providing just one of the many solutions to meet those targets and to really have people put their money where their mouth is. And to follow up to that with the three prong value proposition that you guys have, where there's decarbonization, there's clean energy, as well as energy savings. What exactly is the business model in terms of pricing this lease to these kinds of customers? And is there any kind of price discrimination that you guys have between schools, office buildings, hospitals, gyms? Yeah. So it's definitely something that we're considering at scale. Obviously, we're an early stage company, so we don't have as much flexibility with changing pricing here and there. What I would say is there's a lot of incentives at the regional, at the national level for a lot of these schools and hospitals and community centers and what have you to implement energy efficiency measures. The government will pay you to do so. But I think there's, there's a lot of money, but people don't know how to tap into it. And there's a disconnect. So part of what Carbon Report, we're trying to create a platform so that our customers sort of have this one-stop shop of accessing the incentives to offset the cost of our technology to getting them set up on a carbon credit trading platform. So all of that we plan to do within carbon reform. I mean, I would love to see when we're on scale is a model where nonprofits and schools can access a subsidized version of our technology because it's being offset by maybe heavier polluters or bigger corporations. That's the dream for sure. Cool. All right. Well, speaking of getting at scale, then one of the things in scaling up would be to play across a range of different kinds of buildings and facilities. A key piece of your guys' technology is you know, linking it with the infrastructure that's already there. As you said, we don't want to add new infrastructure, right? We just want it to be dropping. How do you make that happen? You know, how challenging is it to do retrofits in different kinds of buildings based on just your guys' initial instincts at this point? And what does that tell us about what that scaling process might look like for you all? Sure. So for us, it's important that we first are creating a modular technology. That way it becomes easy to change based on every building because every building is different. We've been in a lot of buildings so far and they have different constraints, right? I think the unique thing about our technology being that it's in the return air duct is the return air duct is typically all throughout the building. While it is the best if we can get as close to the air handling unit as possible, realistically, we have more freedom in where we actually put our device because as long as it has access to an exposed air duct, which you can get through a lot of buildings just have exposed ceilings or they have drop ceiling, it's easy to get to, then opens up of where we can actually put the device in the building. But to your point, every building is different. We are standardizing our size for the time being to make it easier to scale up. The nice thing is too, at the core of it, the hardware of our device is made with off-the-shelf parts. 
So when it comes to finding a contract manufacturer, really anybody who's making HVAC equipment, whether it be air conditioners, air handling units, could easily take on manufacturing or our device. Would love to hear about your interactions with the investor community on this. Seems like an exceptional outcome that you guys have been able to raise $3 million in seed funding. And with the growing investor demand for such technologies, what are some key attributes of the company that really helped in raising this and kind of the perception that you have with the investor community? And how do you plan to keep up that momentum in the subsequent funding rounds? Yeah, I think one thing right off the bat is that we're able to permanently sequester carbon dioxide. If you look at the playing field for competing technologies, there might be a focus on energy savings and air quality, but either the CO2 is ultimately re-released to the atmosphere or it's put into fuels or enhanced oil recovery, which is just, again, released downstream. So it's shown that putting it into limestone, into concrete, is what it takes to get that 1,000-year permanence. And that's really what we're trying to aim for in the carbon capture sequestration community. I think the other thing, too, is the ability to create a profit as a carbon capture company was exciting for investors. And to do so not just on the carbon credits. A lot of direct air capture companies are relying on carbon credits for them to become profitable. We don't have to because of the way our energy savings and our pricing works. But I think the another thing is our lens on equity, too. The fact that we're creating a technology that can go into the communities that need the most to really help curb the localized effects of climate change and global warming. And about one of the features when you talk to investors is also about scale. You know, there's the appetite for big solutions, big potential emissions reductions. The percent of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is relatively low compared to the applications in industrial context or in, you know, flue gases from coal plants, where it's maybe going to be five to 15% carbon dioxide. What you guys are sort of looking at is more ambient stuff, less than 1% carbon dioxide. So, you know, what does that mean for how big you guys can get in terms of the level of sequestration that you can achieve? Sure. I like to say we're, we're somewhere in between atmospheric and flue gas because the way our technology works is we're able to expose a high concentration of CO2 to our conversion material at one time. So it's not like we're consistently exposing 400 parts per million. It's more concentrated stream. Because we're a modular solution, we can scale up a lot faster to get to that sizable removal. In the carbon capture space, everybody's talking about gigaton scale removal by 2050. That's what a lot of the investors are looking at too. Based on our measures right now and what we can scale up to, we will be at cumulatively gigaton scale removal by 2050, focused on this decentralized approach. But it's promising to know that on scale, we can still have a dent in carbon capture. That gives a feel for what kind of potential there is. Obviously, the, another channel of money that's coming in is the Inflation Reduction Act, $70 million and in incentives for clean energy, specifically around carbon capture. The thing that seems to have got the most attention is 45Q, where you get up to $85 a ton, I think, for each ton of carbon dioxide sequestered at this point. What are you guys looking at in the IRA? What about it is relevant for you all? It's interesting you mentioned 45Q because we have a love-hate relationship with 45Q. It was created for oil and gas carbon capture, and it's not done the best job of making clear for decentralized approaches like us because there's a minimum threshold to qualify for it. We are working with different groups like the Direct Air Capture Coalition and the Carbon Business Council. There's a lot of groups popping up to help lobby for opening up 45Q to other companies like ourselves that have a unique approach. But I sort of go back to the earlier point of we don't need it to become a profitable company. We were told very early on from advisors, you should never build a company that's based on policy because policy can change. 45Q could change just based on the upper levels of government. So it's great, but we're not relying on it. There are other parts of the IRA that are definitely of interest too. 
there's manufacturing in the US. So one part to mention is we rely on a hub approach to our business model and that all of our manufacturing customers, suppliers need to be within geographic proximity because we don't want to release or CO2 in the supply chain, obviously, that we're capturing. So where we're talking about having customers in the mid-Atlantic area, our manufacturers will be as well. So we can tap into some of those benefits. There's also a lot of energy efficiency tax credits for buildings, specifically commercial buildings in the IRA. So there's quite a few things. We're working with professionals who can more easily interpret it because it is a massive document and we don't want to miss anything. Yeah, no kidding. And I guess like it's back to what you were saying earlier about trying to offer a service where your customers can come to you and you guys basically give them a sense of, hey, what's the landscape out here for us to make this financially workable for you to install this? Yeah. What comes to mind too is the utility companies. The local utility companies have a lot of incentives for buildings to upgrade energy efficiency. It's just a matter of finding them, tapping into them. Luckily, that's who we like to partner with our utility companies. And one of the reasons is for a lot of the programs that they have that can work well with the schools and the lower income areas to put energy efficiency upgrade, like our carbon capture device in their building. Very interesting. And so one other thing, I mean, you know, you mentioned the way in which carbon capture initially has evolved as kind of focused on these big, big scale centralized projects, but you all are looking to do it in decentralized fashion. How big is that space? Do you guys find do you have many people else around you who are like, hey, let's do decentralized carbon capture? It's surprisingly growing and everybody has a pretty unique take on it, even within decentralized. So decentralized for some companies are just smaller direct air capture devices that can be put anywhere. There's usually still a need to be put and run by renewable energy electricity because there is a large energy input, but they're focused on smaller DAC, which is interesting. We've seen similar approaches to HVAC, most of which tend to be post-combustion capture out of the flue gas. That's interesting because like you said, at the higher concentration of CO2, it's dirtier and there's tends to be not as much of an incentive for the building owner because the building owner, if you're doing post-combustion, you don't get the energy savings, you don't get the inert quality. So at that point, you're asking them to pay for climate tech, which not a lot of buildings are up for right now. But it's really very promising to see all the technologies that are coming out and taking different approaches. I mean, we wouldn't exist as carbon reform if oil and gas hadn't started carbon capture decades ago. And that had to become the carbon engineering and global thermostats of the world. And now we have the decentralized approach. So I'll be curious to see sort of who takes the next pivot on carbon capture. And ultimately, like we're all in it to try to curb climate change. So it's an interesting space because we're cheering each other on, but also acknowledging that we are, in some cases, competitors. And there's one other thing I want to follow up because you mentioned that the advantage of you guys is that you're not in the sort of post-combustion where there's no energy savings for the building owner. So it seems like other companies that bring HVAC solutions are offering something to remove indoor air pollutants. They don't remove carbon dioxide. And so because they don't remove carbon dioxide, it requires higher levels of bringing in outside air to change the composition of air within the building. And what you guys are offering basically is say, hey, instead of having to bring in this outside air, let's scrub the carbon dioxide so we don't need to bring as much air in to freshen up the air in the building. And that's the source of the energy savings. Am I understanding that right? That's correct. A lot of buildings, when you actually go and look at their building management system, their ventilation rate is contingent on the level of CO2 inside because CO2 is an indicator of occupancy. So typically if occupants are low, you won't ventilate the building as much. But if you have bad ventilation, you could have low occupants and still like we were in a gym the other day that was in the basement. It was a very tight space. Like you can open windows. There were 
five people working out, 2,300 parts per million in the space. Like it shouldn't be that much, but there's many reasons why it could be that case. It could have poor ventilation. It's a tight space. So what we're saying is you can do everything you want. You can ventilate, you can use your existing HVAC system as it should be. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get all the CO2 out to a healthy lip. So I think that's what we're trying to say is a lot of buildings started overventilating during COVID because you had governing bodies like the CDC telling people that dilution is the solution. So when a building owner sees that, they say, okay, I'm going to go way above my minimum air changes per hour, which just hikes up your energy bill, which puts a bigger load on the grid. COVID didn't do energy efficiency any just. Just to round out this conversation, Nick, I have a personal question for you. As a co-founder of this very impactful and high-tech company, what have you found as the most exciting thing to work on? And how do you expect your role to evolve as the company scales? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to go back to the social impact focus of what we're doing. I think it's very exciting to know that we can create a technology that will actually go to the people that need it the most, all while creating a profitable business. And I feel like sometimes business owners where the public doesn't see the connection, like how can you create impact right off the bat without creating a scalable business? And I think just being very intentional of how we price of who we engage with from an investor standpoint, from a stakeholder standpoint, and also being like true to our core values as founders. I think being an LGBT owned and women owned business says a lot of not only how we grow our team, how we bring on investors, board members, but also how we grow our business and what we focus on and what's important for us. And we've seen this gap in the market that exists for carbon capture and other emerging technologies that we found a way to, to fill. Right on. Well, as you've gotten us a flavor of how you're trying to sell that, if listeners want to find out more, where do they go? I would say two ways. Obviously, feel free to check out our website, carbonreform.com. Pretty easy. We didn't create any fancy company name because we wanted to get an idea of what we do just in the name. So carbonreform.com. Can't forget that. And then most of our other updates come through LinkedIn. We're still growing our other social media channels, but LinkedIn is where you can see most of our updates. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Nick for joining us. If you like this conversation, please spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us at The Wharton Current on Instagram and at Wharton Current on Twitter. And we'll be back again later this month with another exciting guest from the world of clean tech startups. So stay tuned.